So my guest today is Sam Jacobs, who is a serial entrepreneur. He's an author, author of the book, Kind Folks Finish First. But it was a really wide ranging conversation about changes to the VC industry, why kindness and profitability are not false polarities, why you can be both kind and profitable. And it was a really great conversation about personal and self-empowerment. So I hope you find it helpful. And if you're ready, let's get started. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening to this, I'm so glad you tuned in today to Mission Driven You, which is a podcast focused on people who want to do good and do well in the world. And in that vein, I've got a really exciting guest today. His name is Sam Jacobs, and he's the CEO of a company called Pavilion, which is the premier community and career development platform for high growth leaders and also for their teams. He's also the author of a really interesting book called Kind Folks Finish First, and we're going to dig into that. But first of all, Sam, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. And I mentioned before we started, there's always one question we kick off every episode with, which is, tell us the story of somebody that made a difference for you. It could be a teacher, mentor, parent, just somebody that when you look back, you're like, wow, I wouldn't be where I am today without them. I think one of the one of the people that's had a really big impact on me is actually a, a former boss. It was a, a boss of mine when I joined a company called Gerson Larimer Group in 2003, and he actually had started the same week that I started. His name's Jonathan Glick. And he is sort of, he's a genius. He's also somebody that is involved in all kinds of cutting edge technologies and innovations. And he was, he was just somebody, I was about 25 years old when I started at this company, and he really shepherded me into senior management under his tutelage over the seven and a half years that I was there. And when I joined the company was doing about 25 million in revenue. And when I left, they were doing about 300 million. And so we saw an incredible growth journey. And he was one of the first people that and he did it a lot of different ways, but really what he did was just give me uh, you know, as much room to run as I could handle and give me massive opportunity and responsibility. He didn't always provide direct step-by-step -step instructions, right. but he believed in me enough that it helped me gain the confidence to become more of a leader in that organization. So that's one person that comes to mind. We've been friends now for 20 years. He's wow. an investor in Pavilion. He's been a mentor the entire time. And even when I've gone through you know, a lot of downs and some ups in my career, he's always been there to lend a helping hand. He's one of those people where if you need he might you might not hear from him all the time, but if you text him right at this moment and say, "Hey, I need to meet for a coffee or a drink tonight to talk about something that's right. important in my life," he will be there in an instant. And so uh, that's somebody that comes to mind. I love that story, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's I always it's always interesting because in the world of entrepreneurship, but in the world of anything, we just simply don't succeed alone. There's other people that help get us here. So thank you for. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Well, I I mean, to your point, well, I that's the bigger the bigger answer is that there's been dozens yeah. and dozens and yeah. dozens of people that have helped yeah. me get where I am today and um that's the beauty of, you know, that's the world I live in which is community and the right. whole purpose of it is that that old phrase, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone and if you want to go far, go together. And yeah. uh you know, if you want to go far, you need a group of people that support you, that you're connected to, uh, that you help and that help you in return. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. It does seem counterintuitive. It shouldn't be, but it seems counterintuitive to kind of the story we're told in the culture, which is 
the ruthless win, the the tough guy, the tough negotiator, the one looking out for themselves. They're the ones that are always going to come out on top. And yet you wrote this book called Kind Folks Finish First. So help us understand the story there. Yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 interesting thing about our society, about our culture, really about and I don't mean to make it political or economic, but uh, Western democracies and Western capitalism is that there's a lot of paths to success. There's not just one. So it's true that one of the stories we hear is that the the cold-hearted, ruthless bastard is the person that makes it to the top of the pyramid. But the, the, part, the point of the book is that when I followed those precepts and when I was solving only backwards for myself and for kind of the next transactional moment where I could make the next five cents or 10 cents or two bucks or whatever it may be. When I focused exclusively on making money to the exclusion of doing good or helping other people, I didn't make that much money. That was sort of the point. And uh, and, and every time I said, I'm going to sweep away all of the big ideas and I just want to make money, it right. didn't work. Right. And when I finally gave up and you know, it's this moment of surrender. So there's like a serenity prayer reference there's probably some kind of reference to the 12 steps in some way and you know acknowledging that you're powerless in yeah. some way over the in the face of powers greater than yourself that there's a higher power potentially but the point is that once i stopped struggling so much to be something that i thought i was supposed to be and once i just accepted the rules that I wanted to play by, that was when everything in my life changed. And so that's what the book is about. The book is the idea of my company, com- the company is called Pavilion. It is, you know, we're 10,000, over 10,000 members uh, today, all over the world. We have communities and representatives and members in Copenhagen and Singapore and Sydney and Boston and Sao Paulo. And so that reality that this thing is bigger than I ever thought it would be. And it never started and it never was because I wanted it to be a big thing. I never set off with that ambition. The ambition I set off with was I wanted to build something that I believed in, that had job security for me because I was. it was clear to me I was a little unemployable as it related to working for other people. Right. And and it was a business that whose sole purpose was helping other people. And it you know there's a lot of communities out there and there's a lot of clubs and sometimes the clubs are sort of organized really around the idea of they are cool and popular, even in the absence of any other broad, more broadly defining mission. But this particular club is organized around a very specific purpose, which is to help people get where they want to go in their careers. And so I wrote the book because when I finally kind of got off the merry-go-round and set off on my own journey, and my own journey was not defined by becoming a billionaire or becoming on the cover of Fortune magazine or speaking at a TED conference. None of those things I've done, by the way. But when I my journey was, I'm going to build a business focused on helping people that I hope can support me. And if I can get to a certain level, then I can support myself. I can do it for as long as I want to do it. And that's all I need. And when I let go of all of the other preconditions, that ironically, and perhaps coincidentally or serendipitously, that's when all the stuff that I'd always wanted arrived anyway, when it comes to wealth and impact and size and scope. So that's what the book's about. You know, it starts 
on Friday the 13th. It starts on Friday the 13th, October 2017. And I'm driving down the New Jersey Turnpike. And that was, I've been fired for my last five jobs. And we're, my wife and I were going to a wedding and uh, we, I got a message from my then CEO and it became clear. It was one of those very terse messages that right. said, you know, I didn't realize you'd be out today. Please see me first thing Monday morning. And this is a person, as I always joke, that liked to sleep in. So when <laughs> she wanted to meet first thing Monday morning, right. it, it was an ominous. It was not good. It was yeah. not good. <laughs> and that was the, that was the inflection point. And I, I guess I call it an inflection point because that was the moment I realized I was being fired and I yeah. just decided to not nurse my wounds, not feel sorry for myself. I didn't need to go anywhere to clear my head. I just resolved in that moment that I was going to use that opportunity being fired as a springboard to change the trajectory of my life. And that's that's what so the book is a memoir. The book is about this journey of building this company. And this book is about the principles that underscore the company itself. And that's, yeah, that's what it's about. I love that. I love that. And and the the idea of recovery and, and 12-step principles certainly resonates with my journey as well. So I, I totally get that. Is there a sense in which, I'm not even sure how to ask this, but is there a sense in which the kind of addiction to the cultural narrative is, is or, or the the sort of being beholden to the cultural narrative is its own kind of addiction? Like we feel stuck in this story of of, you know, get ahead of the next guy, put, you know, push yourself harder and all that. It's there in many ways, it shares some characteristics with certain, certain of us who, who have, have dealt with addiction issues in the past, this idea that, well, of course, this is how you do it. This is how everybody does it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've got friends and I, you know, all of us, I mean, it's hard to be an adult in your forties or fifties and not have some exposure to the world of compulsion and obsession right. and whatever form right. it takes. Right. And my experience is that more than drugs or alcohol, um, money is the central compulsion of our society. Yep. And, and even related and deeper than that is the comparison of yourself to other people. And it's of course easy. I'm not immune from it. You know, this is not a right. thing I, I have. Uh, this is why it's like in recovery. I suppose you're never cured, right? Like I, right. I'm <laughs> cured of my instinct to compare myself to others, to seek and to strive, to change my position in life, perhaps, perhaps out of, you know, what the Buddha would consider to be like weakness or right. pain or suffering. So it's a complicated issue, but yeah, I think, as, I mean, and, and again, remember I live in, I live in New York city, right? So yeah, you're in the village, right? Yeah, I'm in the village and this is a place, money rules this place. Right. <laughs> you know, like this, if you ever think you've made it to New York, because there's always 10 people right. that, you know, slightly bigger house, slightly nicer apartment. You know, yep. they went to the Amalfi Coast and they went somewhere even nicer than they went to the Seychelles, you know, or something. Right. Like that. So, <laughs> It's anyway, to your point, I think that part of our culture, and that's part of the balance, right? Part of the the culture the culture is about comparing yourself to others and competition and ambition. And and my book, by the way, is not about that ambition is a bad thing because I don't actually think it is. I, I actually get a yeah. lot of meaning and fulfillment from my ambition, from my interest in building things and taking the status quo and changing it in some way and leaving something behind. And I've done that with companies and I've done that with music and I, I've recorded albums and things like that. And it's all the central, you know, this central burning desire that's in a lot of us to create something, to bring something right. out from inside and leave it with the rest of the world. So 
The answer to your question is yes. I think that there's a lot of the tension is between how do you live a healthy, centered, calm existence that still has, that doesn't mean you're complacent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I want to, I want to drill down on that though, Sam, because I, that's a, this is a really big idea that comes up a lot for me is this, can I start a company with integrity or can I make money? Can I be an artist? I have friends similar, like, can I be a writer and have integrity? Can I be this and have integrity? Can I be this and be successful? Talk more about how you came to that realization. I want to hear more about your journey. Like what, what was it that you finally said, okay, I think these are, I'm creating false polarities. I can be both successful financially and have a high degree of integrity. What was that journey like for you? Well, it was very painful. I mean, again, the, 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 the hardest part of all of this is you want it now. You know, it's like the right. experiment, that social experiment with the kids and they leave like the cupcake or the cookies, yeah. you know, the ones that grab the cookies don't do well in life and the ones that somehow find a way to distract themselves. Right. Gratification. And so it's not for me, it's just been always it's about, again, in this in this in this world where I'm where I feel co- competitive. Yeah my peers and with my friends and with other people that are on different trajectories, it was a process of, of fine, of surrendering, I think, you know, because again, there's a story in the book, I I'm coming out of, uh, I was coming out of GLG, this place where my mentor that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, they paid us a lot of money and I was in my late twenties, early thirties. And there was one year I made like $800,000 in that one year. And it felt right. It felt thrilling, but also sort of dizzying and, and uh, fear inducing because I didn't really feel like I contribute. If I make a certain amount of money these days, I can connect it to the work that I did and the value I created in the world. But this this just felt like a little bit of like luck and accident. And so I came out of that company thinking like, all I want to do is make money. That's the only thing that's important. And it was a period of really eight years from 2010 to 2018. And and again, to the point of the book, really about 2017, when I just realized that it wasn't working. It just wasn't working. You know, some part of it is is just a pragmatism of, I got to look at what's delivering results. And for me, there's a whole series of behaviors and activities and beliefs that were not delivering results. I have this scene in the book where I hire a coach, this guy, Jim Rosen. And one of the first things he says, he says, what do you stand for? And I thought, well, that's a silly, what a, what a stupid question. You know, I stand for making money. That's what I stand for. Why would I be here? Yeah. Exactly. Like it's work. Yeah. And he said, well, that's not, you can't stand for making money. You know, you stand for yeah. money comes after you do the things that you stand for. And that led me on this journey. And again, part of it is just this willingness to let go and say, you know what, maybe I'm not going to become the thing that I, maybe I'm not, you know, that special. Maybe right. I, maybe I'm not going to be the president of Exxon Mobil. I don't even know. You know. It's like a totally random example, but sure. yeah. I'm just going to have to let go of that and pursue what I want to be, no matter what happens and no matter what it ends up leading to. And again, that journey, that was 10 years, that was 15 years of my life. Yeah. And yeah. really my whole life's work is finally getting to a place where I can identify what are the factors that drive happiness and then how can I nurture them and develop them. For you. And so you have a sense of what your ends goals are. You know, in coaching, we sometimes talk about the difference between means goals and end goals. You know what your end goals are. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, you know, one of the big revelations, which I talk about in the book and which I still, you know, try to try to share with other people, you know, the the titles kind folks finish first, but the idea of kindness in the book, first and foremost, applies to me personally. 
because the inner narrative that I had was not particularly supportive. And I often say, and I think other people, I'm not the only one that says this, but you know, if the voice inside your head was, was another person, right. was an outside party. Would you be friends with that person? You would drop them in a, in a hot minute. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Like that person is a jerk, you know, that nothing is ever great. They're never, they're never just, they never just say thank you. And so I was on a run with my friend and, this particular friend, you know, I, I talk about him a lot and, and he, he talks a lot and, uh, you know, has a lot of ideas. So sometimes it's, sometimes it's a lot and sometimes it's a little, but right. one of the things that he said was, he said, how's it going? And I, and instead of just saying great or saying I'm doing well, you know, he, 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 I give some half-hearted dour pessimistic answer and right. he says, does that help? And, uh, and I said, what do you mean? He said, does it help? Does it, does it, do you find that by being negative and hard on yourself, does that draw people to you? Do you find that you get more opportunities? Do you get better results? And I just find that to be a very useful framing because sometimes, you know, if you're too cerebral and you're too thoughtful and analytical, you want to question, for example, there's another question out there. Do, you know, do human beings have free will? Right. right. Or right. is everything determinism? Is everything already preordained and we're just following? And there's a lot of logical arguments why sometimes your body moves before you even have the ability to think about it. Therefore, right. how could you have thought to have moved it? But the whole point of it is that what does it matter? What does it matter? What yeah. matters, I think, is that I enjoy my life more when I believe I have free will, even if I'm wrong. Right. right. I get better right. results when I think that I have free will. And if some philosopher wanted to dispassionately, definitively prove that I did not have free will, I wouldn't really care because it's not, I'm not trying to solve, I'm not a physicist, you know, I'm trying to deliver results in my life and deliver some kind of contentment. And so I get better results when I believe I have free will. And when I take agency over my life and my outcomes, and I get better results when I'm nicer to myself. And when I give myself a break and say, you know, you're doing in many, many ways, you're doing great things. There's obviously room for improvement but you're doing great things. You're a good person. You try hard. Yeah. That's incredibly valuable. And I, I really appreciate that you, you named the book kind, not nice. Cause it's sort of an, it, that's sort of the standard. Well, nice guys finish last, blah, blah, blah. But you, you wanted to focus on kindness. Talk about the difference between kindness and niceness. Well, it's a funny story as well. It's the same guy, Scott, my friend. Yeah. Who I it was called "Nice Folks Finish First, right? It was never yeah. going to be guys because I think that that term is, you know, obviously gender sure. yeah. exclusionary. But um, he said, you know, Sam, that's interesting. He said, "What's the book called?" I said, "It's Nice Folks Finish First. and we're because we run together on Saturdays, and so right. you know, there's a pregnant pause as we're like jogging down the West Side Highway, and I'm like, "What? What, Scott? <laughs> yeah, tell me." Yeah, exactly. He said, well, you know, I think a lot of things about you, Mike, my friend. You're you're interesting, you're smart, you're creative, but nice yeah. is not the first word that comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> that. From the mouth of friends. Yeah, exactly. You know, sometimes they they enjoy that sticking that little needle in, but but it led to a, a useful reflection. And he's right, you know, I'm not always the nicest person. And by nice, right. I mean superficially pleasant, amiable, right. you know. Yeah. I'm trying to do the right thing. That doesn't mean I can control my mood in every instance. That doesn't mean that I can be, you know, I can every single time that, you know, sometimes I'm in a dark mood in an Uber and the Uber driver, I've had people say, I don't know what your problem is today, buddy. So it's about, (laughs) it's about a deeper motivation to try and 
treat people with humanity and treat other living beings with humanity and with compassion, regardless of whether you do it in a gruff way, in a pleasant way. But it's about, you know, actions speak louder than words. It's about how you actually behave in the world, not necessarily the the veneer on top of your behavior. Yeah, yeah. And I can personally attest to that. Growing up outside of New York, but then spending my adult life in the South, I've seen all manner of nice and kind. And uh and I do appreciate that difference. It's a really important distinction. And it's 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 always amazing how the universe brings these things into our story because I was literally coaching a client just this morning on the difference between niceness and kindness. Of course, I knew our, our interview was coming up. Amazing. Yeah. So you have now started, so now you're you're choosing kindness as your operating system. Now I want to talk about pavilion and and what the impulse was behind that, how it works. And uh, and how you've grown that business? Sure, I mean the in the classic, you know the the classic tale of I was the customer, right? So Brilliant right. is a community for it says all functions in the bio, but I think we're refining that to really just be what we originally were. So we originally were a community for revenue leaders because that's what I was. So from 2003 yeah. to 2018, I was leading sales teams and marketing teams at high growth companies in New York City. And the, the idea that I had heading into these roles was that, you know, as you become more senior, you know, you have this idea of golden parachutes and golden handcuffs and like, you know, you're, you'll get more wealth and more job security. You'll be part of these journeys where you build these companies over many, many years. And I realized that that was, that was not true anymore. That is not true anymore. Yeah. But the average turnover for an executive at a high growth company is about 17 months. So on average, people are coming and going more frequently than they ever have before in startup. Wow. And uh, I think that's a function of the world that we live in and the rate of and pace of technological change yeah. and you know the instant gratification needs of investors and of the founders that run the companies. But whatever the reason, the reality is that people are moving in and out of jobs more often than ever before. There, there needed to be, in my opinion, uh, something that felt union is not the right word, but guild is probably the closest word. Yeah. Yep. Where do you develop your craft? Where do you develop your trade? Where can you go to learn from people that have been, that have walked in your footsteps, walked in your shoes so that you can be good at these things because companies themselves are not going to be equipped to train you on how to do the actual functional work, particularly, right. you know, in a world where the functions themselves are changing by the day, how to be a good sales leader, how to be a good marketing leader. I mean, again, just think about the fact that as we're recording this in April of 2023, chat GPT is about five months old. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. you know, like being a marketer, in 2022 is very, very different than what it's going to mean to be a marketer in 2024, because you're going to need to know how to use generative AI and how yep. it fits to your work. Yeah. And, and that wouldn't even, as a sentence, make sense two years ago. Right, you know? right. So, and so where are you going to go? What kind of organization is going to exist that can provide that connective tissue to help develop you as an individual in your career? And that is what Pavilion is about. That is what right. that is fundamentally what we're about. There's lots of communities out there, as I mentioned. There's lots of clubs. There's YPO and EO. But for me, uh, I want Pavilion to be a place, first and foremost, to be honest, of sophisticated utility. And what I yeah. mean by that is I, I want it to be useful in, in the right. way that going to vocational school and learning how to become a welder is useful right. definitionally right. because it gives you a practical skill that you can monetize so that you can put a roof over your head and, and you know provide for your family potentially. So 
the situation that I was in was I was going through, I was one of the people on the merry-go-round. I was being fired and going into new companies and getting all excited about it and then being asked to leave. And I created this community as a mechanism to help support myself and my friends so that at least we could find new jobs when we needed to. We could learn how to negotiate more effectively and successfully. We could input best practices into the companies to give us a greater chance of success. You know, I didn't think it was a venture scale business. I didn't think it was some global idea. I just thought it's a sales executive club, and right. but with a point of view. And I don't know why there isn't one in New York, but there doesn't seem to be. So I'll do the one in New York. And then people started hearing about it from all over the world and started reaching out to me. Yeah. And then, you know, and then we were off to the races. And then the big inflection point was really COVID when everybody was alone and felt yep. an acute need to find digital community more than ever. And that was when we grew, you know, four and a half X over the course of 12 months. And that led to a funding round, which again, I never anticipated be even being possible. Yeah. And then that led to its own series of challenges. And, and you know, over the last year and a half, two years, when you're, when you have a little bit more capital and you, and you have this aspiration of growth, and it sometimes it pulls you a little bit away from your core vision, which is to the point of, you know, the bio you read says for all functions. And we've realized that we're not going to be able to do that. Right. That right. Really focused on what we can do. And so it's been this period of expansion and contraction and diffusion and focus. And, and now here we are. Yeah. Uh, that's really helpful. And I want to talk in a minute about some of the changes that I think are happening in the, in the venture capital uh, world and, and in startups in general, but but I want to pause because you just talked about going through significant changes. Tell us what it looks like for you to stay grounded and stay connected to your purpose during those times of conflict and change and turmoil. Well, it's hard. I'm not going to yeah. say that it's easy. You know, I, I, I mean, first of all, one of the, there's like a bunch of different lessons. One of them is that, you know, you want to believe in this in the story of your own exceptionalism, but the reality is we are all connected, and and right. I mean that metaphysically. And I mean that specifically as it relates to the economy, right? Right. We're right. all part of the economy. When things are going really, really well, then you're going to tend to do a little bit better and sometimes way better. And when things aren't going as well, uh, you're going to tend to do as everybody else is going to tend to do. So that's one part of it is like not attaching your identity to the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of of the macroeconomic environment, right? right? Like right. when money is free and the Fed's pumping currency into the economy and you own an yeah. asset like a company, yeah, you're going to do better. The stock market's right. going to go up and you're going to feel like right. a genius. And when the Fed raises interest rates faster than at any time <laughs> in the last 50 years, then right. you're going to feel like maybe you're not as smart. And right. neither of those things are true. You weren't a genius before and you're not an idiot now. So one part of it is just a little bit of perspective. Right. And then what you've got to do is you've just got to, again, it's all about, for me, all of life, when I'm focused on the long-term, when I don't need anything in the moment, or or yeah. as there's another way of saying when I'm happy in the moment, then can make more grounded decisions. But when you're coming from a place of need or desperation or anxiety, that's when you make decisions that are not not as grounded. And so that's, you know, for me, the story of our company over the last you know year and a half was we had this idea of like community and this professional development platform and being, a, 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 you know, a, the modern version of a guild. But we said, we can do this for all functions. Yeah. And, yeah. We, got, and we can do this for all levels of, of seniority. We can do it for junior right. people and for senior people. And all of that is moving away from your core customer 
to different customers. Now that might make sense. There's plenty of reasons why that might make sense. One of the biggest reasons why you might need to do that is if you've reached the end of your current group of existing customers, but I I hadn't reached the end. Right, right, right. So I had a friend and she said, you know, well, how big is your your total addressable market? And I said, well, just salespeople, just salespeople, sales executives, sales and marketing executives in North America, we estimate there's about 60,000 VP of sales, VP of marketing, CEOs and founders at high growth companies from zero to 50 million in revenue, which is not that much. Right. And she said, okay, so how many do you have? I said, we have 4,000 and we have 10,000 total, 4,000 executives, 6,000 right. non-executives. She said, then why did you ever do anything other than just go and try and find the next 54,000 executives? And I said, that's a great question. And I wish you'd <laughs> asked me that question two years ago. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I think again, but what it fundamentally comes down to is how do you construct your day-to-day in such a way that you're not operating from a place of desperation or anxiety? And, and sometimes what that means, you know, specifically when it comes to high growth companies is you either have enough money to live forever or you're profitable. And if you're an unprofitable and capital constrained, those are, that's a bad recipe. That is not right. a recipe for peace of mind. Right. So part of what we've had to do over the last, you know, I mean, honestly, four weeks ago, we did yeah. a pretty big reorg and we parted ways with a number of exceptional people, but we did it because we needed to become profitable right. so that partially an answer to this question so that we could operate from a place of bounty and a place of focusing on our customer and not a place of desperation or need. Yeah. And there was actually probably a sense of kindness in that. Long-term kindness. You know, I mean, you try to make, you know, you try to treat people well and you give them severance and you try to acknowledge that you were the reason that, you know, they joined in the first place and and you were wrong and that you made some mistakes. And, but the only thing that would be unkind in a way is knowing that you've made a mistake and not doing anything about it. You know, we serve 10,000 people and there's a lot of people that we've helped in meaningful ways in their life. And I just, I got to keep that going, you know, like I don't want to out of this this because I'm too scared to make a tough decision. Now, tell us more about the idea of a guild and why you think that's important because historically, People came into the startup world. Typically, they started at either one of the big consulting firms or they started at a big company, and then they kind of proved their chops, and then they 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 came off and and worked started working in the startup space. Why do you think it's important that we have a guild? I think it's important because the, the big the big answer to the question is there is no st- security or stability in the modern world. Yeah, that would be the simplest answer to the question. And as I said, I mean even. Again, I'm not trying to be too futuristic here, but there's a lot of very smart people talking about, well, why do you need companies in a world where you have AI? Like, why do you need 20? At a minimum, you're going to need 10 people when you used to need 30, right? right? Because because ChatGPT and the future iterations, they will be your personal assistant. They can create copy. They can create join tasks. So what does all that mean? All of that to me just means volatility. That's what it means. Right. It means it doesn't mean no opportunity. There's plenty of opportunity, but the companies, the idea of a company as a as a as a steady long-term repository of your that is where where their focus to to spread their product to a large group of people is directly connected to your focus of building monetizable transferable skills that you can use right. to support yourself. Right. I think those things are diverging more quickly than they have in the past. And in the past, the world didn't change so quickly. You know, I mean, I'm always struck by, this is sort of a random aside, but when you watch Mad Men, 
You know, it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> it, nothing happens uh, on right. a day. He can take a four hour nap and that's okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So in the modern world, I just think we're all going to be free agents of a kind and we're going to have to take responsibility for the skills that we want to develop that will help us provide for ourselves absent, you know, universal basic income or something like that. So that means that like, well, where are you going to learn those skills? Well, you've got to like pick a path and then there's going to be companies that train you and develop you. And those companies are not going to be, they're not going to work for your employer. They're going to work for you because, because it wouldn't make sense for them to work for your employer because your employer is not dependable or reliable enough to support you over 15 years. Maybe they can support you over two years. You know, part of sometimes when people hear, the average tenure is 18 months or 17 months for a high growth executive. Some part of that's scary. There's people like me that say, you know what? Maybe that's the right amount of time. You know, I get bored after a year and a half. Maybe that's how long I should be at a company. Right. So at any rate, I think much more of the world over time is going to look like, like Hollywood, you know, is going to yeah. look like yeah. groups of independent agents that coalesce into teams. And some of the teams are stable because those people like working together and some of the teams are not, but fundamentally your career is going to be your responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I want to come back to that. But one of the things that came up for me as you were talking was how important having a community as well, and not just the guild, but a community, something that you belong to that isn't tied to you know, a corporate structure and isn't necessarily tied, you know, if you think about bowling alone and some of these other books that have talked about how a lot of our community institutions have gone away, what do, what do you do to, or how do you guys help create a sense of community so that people always feel connected, a sense of belonging? Well, I mean, that's, that's our business. We're trying to do that yeah. every way that we can think to. So what does that mean in practice? That means that we use online interfaces where people can ask questions and get answers It means we try to create status and recognition for our members based on those who are most helpful or those who are Mm. volunteering. So we have these concepts of what we call core groups, which are groups of about 100 to 150 people in the same region. And we want those people and those people have a monthly call and those people meet up in person and go to happy hours and go to dinners. We host you know, currently about a hundred salon style dinners every year all over the world. We host major events and conferences. We're hosting all kinds of vig- digital events, but it's really every way that we can think to create connections between people so that they form durable bonds that can that they can rely on to accelerate their own self-interest through reciprocity and kindness. I think that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And one of the I wouldn't really call it like some kind of landmark innovation, but you know, one of the things that we built over the last couple of years is this thing called Pavilion University, which is really just our online learning programs. And, And that is about community in the same way that regular college is about community. How so? Because we put people into cohorts, you take a class, but you talk about what you learned in the class with a study group in the same way you might do that in MBA school. And the consequence is that you form relationships with people that as you go through this learning journey. And so, you know, all of a community is about common interest is bringing people together on common interest, common goals, and then creating a context for those people to interact and support each other. And, and that's what we're trying to do. But again, there's no one perfect formula. It's every way that we can think to. Yeah. I love that. And for you, isn't it about providing the opportunities? Cause I want to get back to this, this notion of self-ownership, which seems so important in everything you've shared so far. But even the providing of a community, doesn't it still come down to what advantage you take of it as an individual? Yeah, of course. And that's, again, that's why, you know, scaling community 
is very hard. And that's where we've made mistakes, right? We've made mistakes because again, if the purpose of the community is it's the cool kids club, well, by definition, there's no way to grow the cool kids club without letting in people that the cool kids don't think are cool. Right. Right. I mean, maybe other people have figured it out, you know, Davos or something like that. I haven't figured it out. Right. That's not my instinct or, or inclination. My inclination is the way to scale is to make it useful. That is my North star. My North star is whether you're sitting in class with someone you like or don't like, you're going to get skills. I'm going to teach you stuff from this world that is going to be useful to help you make more money, get a better job and live a more fulfilling life. Right. And community will wrap around that, but the, but it's not the, what I lead with. What I lead with is change your life. You know, what I lead yeah. with is build new skills, make more money, learn how to negotiate, learn how to start your own consulting business, learn how to become a CEO when you were not a CEO, learn about the differences between private equity and venture capital, learn specific practical answers to questions that are hard to Google, where real world experience and practitioners are going to lend a hand. That's my North Star. And then what I'm really trying to do is all of it as a Trojan horse, because the, the values of the community that are articulated in the book, those are underpinning everything. Right. But I'm not, it's hard for you to, it's, it would be hard, Will, for, for me to ask you for 2,700 bucks a year, which is the membership amount right. to say, because you're going to get to help other people and be kind. And you're going to say, well, that's great, Sam. Right. I woke up this morning looking for my next consulting gig or my next coaching gig or struggling with the next chapter of the book that I'm writing. That's what I need help with. So right. I want to help other people, but that's not, that is not my primary. That is not the A to B shortest path between two, two points. Yeah. So, so that's <laughs> what we lead with. Yeah, no. And I, I appreciate that. And I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier, that this notion of, of living out your purpose, living out your values and being profitable are not they're not mutually exclusive at all. In fact, they're quite complementary. Yeah. And there's a funny story there because, you know, the the book, you know, I, I came up with the title and then the publisher said, you know, Sam, do we, are we sure we want to call it that? You know, because maybe it's yeah. called kindness principle. It's not really about kind folks finishing first, right? It's about, you know, it's just about being kind as like, as a, as a nourishing sense of altruism. Right. And I said, no, that's incorrect. The point of the book is that, this is a pra- this is a methodology to achieve yeah. success, however yeah. you define it. And if you want to define it as making money, then yes, it is a path to making money. It's just a different path to making money. It's a longer term path to making money. It's about making money over 20 years, not over six months. Yeah. So to your point, it is that the book is explicitly about in, in some ways it's it's almost I don't know if it's tacky or, or gauche, but it's, it, it is, this is a recipe for professional success that is simply different than the recipe that we've been led to believe is the only path. Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. So I want to take us out with one kind of final question. This is a question I've been playing around with lately. So oftentimes I have people on this podcast who are giving very practical advice, but then also usually the people that are attracted to this podcast are also offering a bigger frame uh, for how to live in the world. So what I want you to do is imagine that Kind Folks Finish First ends up being required reading at Davos. It gets into the President's Economic Council. They're passing it around in the UN and we're 20 years from now. So we're in 2043 and people have read Kind Folks Finish First. How do you imagine the world would be transformed by them reading this book? 
I think it's a great question. And what I hope, what I hope, I mean, here's what, of course, I would hope more economic growth, right? You know, GDP is up 4% instead of 3%. I think, however, what you would feel on a day-to-day basis is just a bit more softness in the world, a bit more softness, a bit more people. I come across so many people, they don't understand Honestly, I hate to say this, but many of them are European, Uh, but they don't understand that the results they're getting are a function of their worldview, are a function of their outlook, are a function that they are convinced that being kind of short-term focused is the only responsible path. And they don't, it's, and again, I don't mean to make it sort of weirdly, you know, jingoistic or or cultural, but it is a, a it is a kind of American sense of what's possible without being forced to quantify it. It is a world of non-zero sum outcomes, right? It is a world of abundance. And so how would you, how would you experience that on a day-to-day basis? People would be on the margin, more helpful people on the margin would not, you wouldn't get strange bills from everybody. Every time somebody made an introduction, right? The people right. would be willing to do 30 to 45 minute phone calls with you and not, not have this long soliloquy about how they're giving away their consulting advice. They would understand that karma is a real thing and it comes back to them. And so again, like the, the, the sense that you would get is just a bit more softness in the world, a bit more. And again, it's hard to, you know, some of these are just like the ways that I look at the world, but a little bit less victimization, you know, a little bit more agency, a little bit more acceptance that, you know, the world turned out uh, putting aside tragedy, putting aside horrible car accidents and volcanic eruptions and all of that stuff. But, but generally speaking on a day-to-day basis, that the things that happen to you are a function of your behavior, which is a good thing because it means you can change your behavior to change the things that are happening to you. So that's, that's what I would hope. You know, I would just, again, like people a little bit more open, a little bit more willing to lend a hand, a a, a bit more willing to check themselves, a little bit less defensive, a little bit less polarizing, a little bit less, let me listen before I form a snap judgment and sort of cast you as the enemy. That's what I would hope for. I love that vision. Thank you, Sam. So Sam Jacobs, you need to pick up his book, Kind Folks Finish First. We're going to put a link to it in the show notes. Tell us how else people can connect with you. How can they how can they learn more about Pavilion? How can people find out, get into the Sam Jacobs world? Well, they can easy way to do it is to go to our website, joinpavilion.com and fill out, you know, or you can email me, Sam at joinpavilion.com. You can text me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, it's, we're pretty easy to find. The, the the people that should reach out to us if you're a founder or you're a leader of a revenue function at a company that's looking to grow and you want more skills and you want more support and you want to plug into a global community of people committed to helping you, that's when you should reach out. I love it. Sam Jacobs, thank you. Thank you for the book. Thank you for your voice. And thank you for being here today. All right. Thanks for having me. 